All right, good to see everybody. Is everybody ready for spring break? Yeah, you're almost there. Um, so in RUF, we say you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Uh, and at the same time, you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. That one thing about us is that we rely on God. We rely on the grace of God in everything we do. So some of you may be here tonight and really recognize how much you need grace. Um, I don't know where all of you are coming from, whether that maybe uh, is a poor decision you made or a circumstance in your life that is currently just exhausting you. Um, know that God's grace moves towards you. It doesn't shrink back from you. Um, that there's nothing that, um, that you're never so bad that you're beyond his reach. Uh, and others of you, you know, you, you need to be reminded of God's grace because you're actually doing pretty good. Um, and because of that, you start to feel that maybe you're the one who has it together. And maybe you lose sight of how much you really do need God and everything you're doing. And I pray that tonight his grace overwhelms you, that you continue to recognize how much you need him. Uh, so we are going through this book of Ephesians, one of Paul's letters this semester. And right now we are in the middle of chapter four. Uh, so last week we spent some time talking about what we believe about God, how it moves us together and unites us, that it gives us a new community, that we are united. Uh, and out of that, we grow, we grow in maturity. And tonight we are going to read 4, 17 through 32. And we're going to ask ourselves, what does maturity look like? That maybe you're here tonight and you feel stuck. Maybe you feel stuck in place and you desperately want to know, can I change? Is that even possible? How do I change? And often the answer to these questions is where Christians really go wrong that we point to passages like the one we're about to read and we say, yes, change is possible. Just do these things. Just do this, do that. We are very quick to make lists of things for ourselves uh, or for others without understanding how we were even supposed to do them. How do we change in the first place? So church or the Christian life, it actually becomes a place where um, we just learn our task list or we l learn our marching orders. Just give me what I'm supposed to do, and I'll go attempt it. I'll go do it. So you need to read your Bible more. You need to uh, be more kind, or you need to uh, make better decisions, like whatever it is. But please know that just doing those things and just being, having your list, that's not Christianity. That's just religion. That the order of how we do things is so important in Christianity. That remember what Paul has emphasized throughout three whole chapters before we even get to this point. That God is restoring the world. He's working. That our belief of, of what he has done is so important. And he has united people not based on what they do, but based on Jesus, based on his work. That Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, 
has brought people together to experience life as God intended it for their good, for our good. That the church is a group of people united underneath the work of Jesus. And then out of that, they are seeking to experience life in a different way. They are changing, they are growing rather than experiencing life from where they came from. So the church is a place of people, uh, a place that people can and do experience change. So what does this change look like? So let's read Ephesians 4, 17-32, and see how Paul describes this new life. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard of him, or heard about him, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray together. Dear God, um, Thank you that you give us your words, um, that we are not alone, that we are able to hear from you, um, and that it, it shapes us, it changes us. Thank you that your word uh, actually does speak and is powerful. And so tonight, I pray that we are able to hear that, that your word will change us, because uh, we know we need help. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So really the whole point of this entire passage is that if what we believe about God uh, and, and Jesus is true, if what we actually believe about what Paul says in chapters one through three, then what does that mean? Like how, how are we supposed to live now? How do, we, how do we know what to do? It should affect us. It should change our lives. And in order to demonstrate this, Paul reminds the Ephesians of three things here. Their past, their present, and their future. You all right, Connor? <laughs> <laughs> so first point, Paul is reminding them of our past, where we came from. So look at verses uh, 17 through 19. Paul doesn't hold back in his description of those who do not know Jesus who he refers to as the Gentiles, people that are outside 
of God's people. Um, so he first says that their lives are marked by futility, that this is what, uh, what this looks like. This is where we came from. What does he mean by futility? He's saying that one of the characteristics of those who aren't Christians is having a sense of purposelessness. It's having a life that feels pointless, feels futile. This is a, sort of what the book of Ecclesiastes points to. I don't know if any of y'all have ever read that book, uh, but it's in the Old Testament. It's known as the wisdom literature. Uh, and the author says in Ecclesiastes 2.17, he says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That sometimes we truly believe that life will give you fulfillment when you finally get that degree or uh, you finally have a spouse or you finally accomplish some goal of yours or whatever it is. But then you get there and you find out that it really doesn't do that. Uh, the actor Jim Carrey, I've, I've quoted this before, but it's a great quote. He says, um, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can realize that it's not the answer. Good quote, Jim. <laughs> he recognizes that there's something more than whatever we are chasing. That all the time and energy we put into finding things that will fill us, make us happy, provide for some deep longing we have, it's ultimately futile. It's walking as the Gentiles walk. It's not going to work. This is the futility of how the Gentiles walk. But he goes on to say that the reason for this futility and misunderstanding about life is due to their hardness of heart. At the end of verse 18, that a lot of times we think that people really, what they really need is just the facts. You know, they need the intellectual understanding of the gospel and then they'll become Christians. But that's not according to Paul, that there's something more than just this knowledge of truth. There's actually the love of the truth. It's why you can have brilliant people that have read, studied God, and yet they still don't love God. They don't want to know God. They have hardened hearts. That when somebody professes to be an atheist, often it's argued that intellectually they have concluded that God, he just can't exist. And that's the reason. But in reality, they don't like the God that is presented to them. They don't want to believe They've hardened their hearts. They don't really want to have that God. Faith is not against reason, intellect, or science. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying it that at all. But what I am saying is that in order to have intellect and reason, you have to hold certain beliefs about things. You have to have certain faith about things. That it goes beyond the scope of just observation or research. And our heart commitments always shape what we pursue. So in other words, you have to have faith in certain things in order to truly know anything. This is what Paul is pointing to, that the Gentiles have a heart commitment and it's pointed away from God. It's hardened. And so where is it pointed? 
Paul goes on to say that it leads them uh, to callousness, leading to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what is this language he's using? Well, it's the language of uh, powerlessness. It's the language of addiction. That futility of life that craves to have meaning, but recognizes it, it's futile and hardens, it hardens its heart away from the only true source of meaning, God, it will find meaning. It'll just find meaning in other things that isn't God. <laughs> that we become greedy for impure things because it's what we think will truly meet longings. It's what we think will truly meet our longings of our heart that we so desperately want. So we seek out sex, for instance, in ways that God hasn't designed it because we're greedy for it. Thinking that's where all my longings will get met. But they don't. It's why so many people are addicted to pornography. Or we seek out popularity and status and power in the wrong ways because we desire to be liked or wanted and are able to find that in the wrong places. St. Augustine said this once, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee, until we find our rest in God. But that longing, that desire to just be filled, be satisfied, it will never stop. <laughs> you will be restless. So Paul moves then into where are we now? What's different? And so he points us to our present. And notice Paul says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. Which isn't really correct English. Like, when you complete a math course, you can say, you know, I learned math. But when you met me and we became friends, I don't think you said, I learned Davis. I learned Davis. <laughs> right? So what, it, what I think Paul is doing here is creating an emphasis on, on the difference of knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. What does that mean? Meaning you learned Christ. You became intimate with him. You didn't just learn about him, but you were woven into him. You became so close to him that you know him. Think about the ocean, which this is my plug for summer conference. If you want to see the ocean, come with us to summer conference. We're going to be going to the ocean, all right? Um, so sign up. But think about what it means to know about the ocean. Like, you can picture it in your head. You can think about the creatures that live in it, um, the waves up against the shore. But you don't really know the ocean until you actually get in and experience it. You feel the power of the waves. You know, you feel the sand underneath your feet. You smell it. You sense it. And this is Paul saying, you learned Christ. You learned Christ. How did you learn him? Because you took off the old self and put on the new self. Now, this is confusing to some of you because it sounds an awful, light, uh, an awful lot like the Christianese. We often like say and do, like, you know, put on your new self. Um, and so it's, uh, sometimes we get this idea that what that means is we really just need to perform well 
You know, put on, put on the new clothes, put on your new self, perform better, be better. But Paul isn't talking about that here. What is he talking about? He's talking about what happens when you become a Christian. You are different in your nature. It's something that defines you now. Your story is Christ's story. Your identity is not you anymore. Your identity is Jesus. I mean, how many of you are here with just a history that you are ashamed of? Things you've done, things you've said, things you've witnessed that you just don't like. And that's part of your history. Or, or a story that is painful and full of abuse or trauma or a father and a mother that hurt you in certain ways. Well, here's the good news, that when you become a Christian, you're not defined by that history anymore. Your history really is different. Your history is Jesus's history. Quite literally, you are defined by a new story. His story is your story. This is what baptism points to, is that um, you're washed, cleansed, and, and you're, you're brought to life. Um, you're defined by a different story now. But also think of all the different, like, quote-unquote baptisms we do. Um, for instance, I was in a fraternity, and one of the things we had was an initiation ceremony in, in our fraternity. And so we had different rituals that every single one of us uh, in the fraternity did. Now, why was that? Because they wanted me to be marked by this fraternity's identity. They wanted us to share that common, uh, like, unity. They wanted me to not know about the community, but to know the community. So do those of you who are Christians, do you have that same sense about you? That you are defined by what Christ did. His work. That is your history. That is your story now. And this shapes you in your community. So this is the difference in what, it, uh, what we mean by justification and sanctification. That our justification is the new self that God gives us. We put it on like new clothes. Christ covers us. And out of that, we learn what it means to walk in those clothes, what it means to have those clothes. We, we learn the way we are supposed to move in them. And so this is the process of sanctification, that God clothes us in justification by saying that our new self is Jesus. And then he changes us through sanctification into looking like our new selves. So this is the final point. What, what is this going to look like? What's our future? So Paul points to it in the remaining verses, 25 through 32. So where does this lead us? What's our direction? What do we become? So how do we know if we have the new life put on? Well, we change. We look different. We start to look different. We start to do things differently. Not in order to have a new life, but because we have one. Do y'all see the difference? That some of you are working so hard so that you can be a different person. And so you work and you try and you try to pursue difference. But Paul is pointing to the order of looking different because you are a new person. 
not so that you will be a new person. It's why I've stressed the order of the importance in this letter. Paul spends three chapters showing them what they should believe because out of that, they will be different. It's inevitable. So what are the things that Paul points to? Well, it affects our speaking. It affects how we talk to each other. We use our words in a certain way. Paul points this out twice in both verse 25 and verse 29 when he talks about corrupting talk. That part of how we know we are changing is by the way we talk to one another, about one another, what we say, the jokes we do, how we refer to things, that we, that we should look different in what we say or what we post on social media, how we say things. We should think about what we say and how we say it because we're new. We're defined differently now. It also affects how we handle our emotions. You know, it's, it's not a sin to be angry. Because Paul says, be, like, do not sin when you're angry. But there's reasons we should be angry, but we look different in how we are angry. You know, we're able to control it, to settle it, to not let it control us, to where we harm each other. It affects how we hold on to things, our possessions. Let the thief no longer steal. We work honestly so that we can share generously. A person who understands their new identity also understands they don't grip as tightly onto the things that they used to. The things they thought would provide them with happiness and security. They don't have to, they don't need it. They're more likely to share, to give others in, in need. And so, and finally, instead of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, we are kind to each other. We recognize that the wrath and anger that could and should have been given to us was actually not given to us through Jesus. That we have no right to hold on to the grudges that we often do if we really are able to recognize what it means to walk in this new self. So I like to tell people that when I became a Christian, my life got worse. <laughs> and so what do I mean by that? It's not that I didn't understand that I had salvation, right? That I was saved or that Christ didn't give me joy. But because Jesus came into my life, my life was flipped around. It's flipped upside down. I couldn't do the things I once did. Like, or if I did them, it affected me differently. I had to withdraw from my fraternity uh, because of a lot of relationships that were actually creating more harmful patterns in me. But I loved those relationships. I loved those people. And it was a long, hard, uncomfortable place to have to be reshifted around. Christ ruined my life. <laughs> There's a quote in the Chronicles of Narnia when they're referring to Aslan, who is the character that represents Jesus. Uh, and, it, and it goes like this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you.
As I meet with some of you, you know, we talk about struggles, struggles of faith, conflicts that you may have uh, with either believing all of scripture or even believing who God is, doubting God's goodness. And one of the reasons that you can actually be comforted in that is because you're having to wrestle. That part of the Christian life is encountering a God that sometimes doesn't make sense. That sometimes doesn't feel safe. But it's encountering a God who is good. He's good. And it's encountering a God who's the king. And is powerful. And so there are times we become confused or anxious or scared when we encounter a God like that. And his work through his word. And know that it's good to have a type of God that you actually don't fully understand. Because it means he's God and we aren't. It means that we're limited because we're humans. Your doubt and your worry and your conflicts are ways that he continues to invite you to trust him, to move towards him. That as you go about the Christian life, there may be times you experience the highest of highs. And there may be at times you experience the lowest of lows. But God has given us the opportunity to live life under his design, the way he intended it. And it's good. It's the best thing for us. And while at times it doesn't feel safe, it's good. He is good. You can trust him as you walk. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, we thank you that you're a God who moves, a God who moves towards us, a God who delights over us, who loves us, who wants us to know him. Uh, So I pray that you would continue to use all the details of our life to draw us even closer to you. Uh, that we would continue to learn what does it look like to walk as a Christian? What does it look like to walk and to change and to grow in this new self that we have, this gift that we have? It's in Christ's name. Amen.